Chapter 32, Part 3 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell. www.voinovoiceovers.com. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Causes of Earthquakes and Volcanoes. Continued. Causes of Earthquakes. Wave-like Motion. I shall now proceed to examine the manner in which the heat of the interior may give rise to earthquakes. One of the most common phenomena attending subterranean movements is the undulatory motion of the ground, and this, says Mitchell, will seem less extraordinary if we can call to mind the extreme elasticity of the earth and the compressibility of even the most solid materials. Large districts, he suggests, may rest on fluid lava and when this is disturbed, its motions may be propagated through the incumbent rocks. He also adds the following igneous speculation. As a small quantity of vapor almost instantly generated at some considerable depth below the surface of the earth will produce a vibratory motion, so a very large quantity, whether it be generated almost instantly or in any small portion of time, will produce wave-like motion. The manner in which this wave-like motion will be propagated may in some measure be represented by the following experiment. Suppose a large cloth or carpet spread upon a floor to be raised at one edge, and then suddenly brought down again to the floor. The air under it, being by this means propelled, will pass along till it escapes at the opposite side, raising the cloth in a wave all the way as it goes. In like manner, a large quantity of vapor may be conceived to raise the earth in a wave as it passes along between the strata, which it may easily separate in a horizontal direction, there being little or no cohesion between one stratum and another. The part of the earth that is first raised being bent from its natural form will endeavor to restore itself by its elasticity, and the parts next to it, being to have their weight supported by the vapor, which will insinuate itself under them, will be raised in their turn, till it either finds some vent, or is again condensed by the cold into water, and by that means prevented from proceeding any further. In a memoir published in 1843 on the structure of the Appalachian chain by the professors Rogers, the following hypothesis is proposed as simpler and more in accordance with dynamical considerations and the recorded observations on earthquakes. In place, say they, of supposing it possible for a body of vapor or gaseous matter to pass horizontally between the strata, or even between the crust and the fluid lava upon which it floats, and with which it must be closely entangled, we are inclined to attribute the movement to an actual pulsation engendered in the molten matter itself by a linear disruption under enormous tension, giving vent explosively to elastic vapors escaping either to the surface or into cavernous spaces beneath. According to this supposition, the movement of the subterranean vapors would be towards and not from the disrupted belt, and the oscillation of the crust would originate in the tremendous and sudden disturbance of the previous pressure on the surface of the lava mass below, brought about by the instantaneous and violent rending of the overlaying strata. This theory requires us to admit that the crust of the earth is so flexible that it can assume the form and follow the motion of an undulation in the fluid below. Even if we grant this, says Mr. Mallet, another more serious objection presents itself, namely the great velocity attributed to the transit of the wave in the subterranean sea of lava. 
we are called upon to admit that the speed of the wave below equals that of the true earthquake shock at the surface, which is so immense that it is not inferior to the velocity of sound in the same solids. But the undulation in the fluid below must follow the laws of a tidal wave, or of the great sea wave already spoken of. Its velocity, like that of the tidal wave of our seas, will be a function of its length and of the depth of the fluid, diminished in this case by certain considerations as to the density and degree of acidity of the liquid. And although it would be at present impossible, for want of data, to calculate the exact velocity with which this subterraneous lava wave could move, it may be certainly affirmed that its velocity would be immeasurably short of the observed or rhetoric velocity of the great earth wave or true shock in earthquakes. Liquid gases. The rending and upheaving of continental masses are operations which are not difficult to explain, when we are once convinced that heat of sufficient power, not only to melt but to reduce to a gaseous form a great variety of substances, is accumulated in certain parts of the interior. We see that elastic fluids are capable of projecting solid masses to immense heights in the air, and the volcano of Cotopaxi has been known to throw out, to the distance of eight or nine miles, a mass of rock about 100 cubic yards in volume. When we observe these aeriform fluids rushing out from particular vents for months or even years continuously, what power may we expect them to exert in other places where they happen to be confined under an enormous weight of rock? The experiments of Faraday and others have shown within the last 12 years that many of these gases, including all those which are most copiously disengaged from volcanic vents, as the carbonic, sulfurous, and muriatic acids, may be condensed into liquids by pressure. At temperatures of from 30 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, the pressure required for this purpose varies from 15 to 50 atmospheres, and this amount of pressure we may regard as very insignificant in the operations of nature. A column of Vesuvian lava that would reach from the lip of the crater to the level of the sea must be equal to about 300 atmospheres, so that at depths which may be termed moderate in the interior of the crust of the earth, the gases may be condensed into liquids even at very high temperatures. The method employed to reduce some of these gases to a liquid state is to confine the materials from the mutual action of which they are evolved in tubes hermetically sealed so that the accumulated pressure of the vapor as it rises and expands may force some part of it to assume the liquid state. A similar process may, and indeed must, frequently take place in subterranean caverns and fissures, or even in the pores and cells of many rocks, by which means a much greater store of expansive power may be packed into a small space than could happen if these vapors had not the property of becoming liquid. For although the gas occupies much less room in a liquid state, yet it exerts exactly the same pressure upon the sides of the containing cavity as if it remained in the form of vapor. If a tube, whether of glass or other materials filled with condensed gas, have its temperature slightly raised, it will often burst, for a slight increment of the heat causes the elasticity of the gas to increase in a very high ratio. We have only to suppose certain rocks permeated by these liquid gases, as porous strata are sometimes filled with water, to have their temperature raised some hundred degrees, and we obtain a power capable of lifting superincumbent masses of almost any conceivable thickness. While if the depth at which the gas is confined be great, 
there is no reason to suppose that any other appearances would be witnessed by the inhabitants of the surface than vibratory movement and rents from which no vapor might escape. In making their way through fissures a very few miles only in length, or in forcing a passage through soft-yielding strata, the vapors may be cooled and absorbed by water, for water has a strong affinity to several of the gases and will absorb large quantities with a very slight increase of volume. In this manner, the heat or the volume of springs may be augmented and their mineral properties made to vary. Connection between the state of the atmosphere and earthquakes the inhabitants of Stromboli, who are mostly fishermen, are said to make use of that volcano as a weather glass, the eruptions being comparatively feeble when the sky is serene, but increasing in turbulence during tempestuous weather, so that in winter the island often seems to shake from its foundations. Mr. P. Scrope, after calling attention to these and other analogous facts, first started the idea, as long ago as the year 1825, that the diminished pressure of the atmosphere, the concomitant of stormy weather, may modify the intensity of the volcanic action. He suggests that where liquid lava communicates with the surface, as in the crater of Stromboli, it may rise or fall in the vent on the same principle as mercury in a barometer, because the ebullition or expansive power of the steam contained in the lava would be checked by every increase and augmented by every diminution of weight. In like manner, if a bed of liquid lava be confined at an immense depth below the surface, its expansive force may be counteracted partly by the weight of the incumbent rocks, and also in part by atmospheric pressure acting contemporaneously on a vast superficial area. In that case, if the upheaving force increase gradually in energy, it will at length be restrained by only the slightest degree of superiority in the antagonist or repressive power and then the equilibrium may be suddenly destroyed by any cause such as an ascending draught of air. In this manner we may account for the remarkable coincidence so frequently observed between the state of the weather and subterranean commotions. Although it must be admitted that earthquakes and volcanic eruptions react in their turn upon the atmosphere, so that disturbances of the latter are generally the consequences rather than the forerunners of volcanic disturbances. From an elaborate catalogue of the earthquakes experienced in Europe and Syria during the last 15 centuries, Monsieur Alexis Perret has deduced the conclusion that the number which happen in the winter season preponderates over those which occur in any one of the other seasons of the year, there being, however, some exceptions to this rule, as in the Pyrenees. Curious and valuable as are these data, Monsieur d'Archiac justly remarks, in commenting upon them, that they are not as yet sufficiently extensive or accordant in different regions to entitle us to deduce any general conclusions from them respecting the laws of subterranean movements throughout the globe. Permanent Elevation and Subsidence It is easy to conceive that the shattered rocks may assume an arched form during a convulsion so that the country above may remain permanently upheaved. In other cases, gas may drive before it masses of liquid lava, which may thus be injected into newly opened fissures. The gas having then obtained more room by the forcing up of the incumbent rocks may remain at rest, while the lava congealing in the rents may afford a solid foundation for the newly raised district.
Experiments have recently been made in America by Colonel Totten to ascertain the ratio according to which some of the stones commonly used in architecture expand with given increments of heat. It was found impossible in a country where the annual variation of temperature was more than 90 degrees Fahrenheit to make a coping of stones five feet in length in which the joints should fit so tightly as not to admit water between the stone and the cement. The annual contraction and expansion of the stones causing at the junctions small crevices, the width of which varied with the nature of the rock. It was ascertained that fine-grained granite expanded with 1 degrees Fahrenheit at the rate of 0.00004825, while crystalline marble 0.00005668 and red sandstone 0.00009532, or about twice as much as granite. Now, according to this law of expansion, a mass of sandstone a mile in thickness, which should have its temperature raised 200 degrees Fahrenheit, would lift a superimposed layer of rock to the height of 10 feet above its normal level. But suppose a part of the Earth's crust, 100 miles in thickness and equally expansive, to have its temperature raised 600 degrees or 800 degrees. This might produce an elevation of between 2 to 3,000 feet. The cooling off of the same mass might afterwards cause the overlaying rocks to sink down again and resume their original position. By such agency, we might explain the gradual rise of Scandinavia or the subsidence of Greenland if this last phenomenon should also be established as a fact on further inquiry. It is also possible that as the clay in Wedgwood's pyrometer contracts, by giving off its water and then by incipient vitrification, so large masses of argillaceous strata on the Earth's interior may shrink when subjected to heat and chemical changes and allow the incumbent rocks to subside gradually. Moreover, if we suppose that lava cooling slowly at great depths may be converted into various granitic rocks, we obtain another source of depression, for according to the experiments of Deville and the calculations of Bischoff, the contraction of granite when passing from a melted or plastic to a solid and crystalline state must be more than 10%. The sudden subsidence of land may also be occasioned by subterranean caverns giving way when gases are condensed or when they escape through newly formed crevices. The subtraction, moreover, of matter from certain parts of the interior by the flowing of lava and of mineral springs must, in the course of ages, cause vacuities below so that the undermined surface may at length fall in. The balance of dry land, how preserved. In the present state of our knowledge, we cannot pretend to estimate the average number of earthquakes which may happen in the course of a single year. As the area of the ocean is nearly three times that of the land, it is probable that about three submarine earthquakes may occur for one exclusively continental. And when we consider the great frequency of slight movements in certain districts, we can hardly suppose that a day, if indeed an hour, ever passes without one or more shocks being experienced in some part of the globe. We have also seen that in Sweden and other countries, changes in the relative level of sea and land may take place without commotion, and these perhaps produce the most important geographical and geological changes, for the position of land may be altered to a greater amount by an elevation or depression of one inch over a vast area than by the sinking of a more limited tract such as the forest of Aripau to the depth of many fathoms at once.
It must be evident from the historical details above given that the force of subterranean movement, whether intermittent or continuous, whether with or without disturbance, does not operate at random, but is developed in certain regions only. And although the alterations produced during the time required for the occurrence of a few volcanic eruptions may be inconsiderable, we can hardly doubt that during the ages necessary for the formation of large volcanic cones composed of thousands of lava currents, shoals might be converted into lofty mountains and low lands into deep seas. In a former chapter, page 198, I have stated that aqueous and igneous agents may be regarded as antagonist forces. The aqueous laboring incessantly to reduce the inequalities of the Earth's surface to a level, while the igneous are equally active in renewing the unevenness of the surface. By some geologists, it has been thought that the leveling power of running water was opposed rather to the elevating force of earthquakes than to their action generally. This opinion is, however, untenable for the sinking down of the bed of the ocean is one of the means by which the gradual submersion of land is prevented. The depth of the sea cannot be increased at any one point without a universal fall of the waters, nor can any partial deposition of sediment occur without the displacement of a quantity of water of equal volume, which will raise the sea, though in an imperceptible degree, even to the antipodes. The preservation, therefore, of the dry land may sometimes be affected by the subsidence of part of the Earth's crust, that part, namely, which is covered by the ocean, and in like manner an upheaving movement must often tend to destroy land, for if it render the bed of the sea more shallow, it will displace a certain quantity of water and thus tend to submerge low tracts. Astronomers having proved, see above, page 129, that there has been no change in the diameter of the Earth during the last 2,000 years, we may assume it as probable that the dimensions of the planet remain uniform. If then we inquire in what manner the force of earthquakes must be regulated, in order to restore perpetually the inequalities of the surface which the leveling power of water tends to efface, it will be found that the amount of depression must exceed that of elevation. It would be otherwise if the action of volcanoes and mineral springs were suspended, for then the forcing outwards of the Earth's envelope ought to be no more than equal to its sinking in. To understand this proposition more clearly, it must be borne in mind that the deposits of rivers and currents probably add as much to the height of the lands which are rising as they take from those which have risen. Suppose a large river to bring down sediment to a part of the ocean 2,000 feet deep, and that the depth of this part is gradually reduced by the accumulation of sediment till only a shore remains, covered by water at high tides. If now an upheaving force should uplift this shore to the height of 2,000 feet, the result would be a mountain 2,000 feet high. But had the movement raised the same part of the bottom of the sea before the sediment of the river had filled it up, then instead of changing a shoal into a mountain 2,000 feet high, it would only have converted a deep sea into a shoal. It appears then that the operations of the earthquake are often such as to cause the leveling power of water to counteract itself. And although the idea may appear paradoxical, we may be sure, whenever we find hills and mountains composed of stratified deposits, that such inequalities of the surface would have had no existence if water, at some former period, had not been labelling to reduce the Earth's surface to one level.
But besides the transfer of matter by running water from the continents to the ocean, there is a constant transportation from below upwards by mineral springs and volcanic vents. As mountain masses are, in the course of ages, created by a pouring forth of successive streams of lava, so stratified rocks of great extent originate from the deposition of carbonite of lime and other mineral ingredients with which springs are impregnated. The surface of the land and portions of the bottom of the sea being thus raised, the external accessions due to these operations would cause the dimensions of the planet to enlarge continuously if the amount of depression of the Earth's crust were no more than equal to the elevation. In order, therefore, that the mean diameter of the Earth should remain uniform and the unevenness of the surface be preserved, it is necessary that the amount of subsidence should be in excess. And such a predominance of depression is far from improbable on mechanical principles, since every upheaving movement must be expected either to produce caverns in the mass below or to cause some diminution of its density. Vacuities must also arise from the subtraction of the matter poured out from volcanoes in mineral springs or from the contraction of argillaceous masses by subterranean heat. And the foundations having been thus weakened, the Earth's crust shaken and rent by reiterated convulsions must in course of time fall in. If we embrace these views, important geological consequences will follow, since if there be, upon the whole, more subsidence than elevation, the average depth to which former surfaces have sunk beneath their original level must exceed the height which ancient marine strata have attained above the sea. If, for example, marine strata, about the age of our chalk and greensand, have been lifted up in Europe to an extreme height of more than 11,000 feet, and a mean elevation of some hundreds, we may conclude that certain parts of the surface which existed when those strata were deposited have sunk to an extreme depth of more than 11,000 feet below their original level, and to a mean depth of more than a few hundreds. In regard to faults, also, we must infer, according to the hypothesis now proposed, that a greater number have arisen from the sinking down than from the elevation of rocks. To conclude, it seems to be rendered probable by the views above explained that the constant repair of the land and the subserviency of our planet to the support of terrestrial as well as aquatic species are secured by the elevating and depressing power of causes acting in the interior of the earth which, although so often the source of death and terror to the inhabitants of the globe, visiting in succession every zone and filling the earth with monuments of ruin and disorder, are nevertheless the agents of a conservative principle above all others, essential to the stability of the system. End of chapter 32, part 3. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell. www.voinovoiceovers.com